1: Today, I am going to be talking to Anushka Shankar. For those of you who don't know who she is, by the end of this podcast, you will have fallen in love with her. She is an incredible sitar player. No, she's probably one of the best sitar players on planet Earth. Her father was the legendary pundit Ravi Shankar, the man who introduced the Western world to Indian classical music. And she is his protege. She learnt from the master and just ran with it. This is an amazing podcast because... I've recently got to know Anushka. She's somebody that's um, been on my radar for years. I've always been in awe of her, actually, because she is, she's a master musician. I love the music she plays. She is taking classical music, and she has brought it on to a new level because she's worked with a lot of Western artists. She's had her work remixed. If you've never heard of her, you really need to check her out, Spotify her, once you've listened to the podcast. Some of her stuff will absolutely blow your mind. And what she does is beyond playing an instrument. She is at one with that instrument when she connects to it. So for then to connect with her and sort of get to know her a little bit and then be invited to her home to interview her, just me and her, in her private studio, which she's had built in her home. I mean, it's making me feel goose pimples just talking about it. She's got some of her sitars put in special display cabinets lit up. I mean, the room, the environment we're in is magical. The whole experience is wonderful and also she really opens up and talks about some quite horrific things that she's been through in her personal life which she's been very open about and has talked about a lot in the press and actually she was involved in a big play about it. So after the the big rape case that happened in India that really shocked the world and India really came together, they called her Nirbhaya, the young girl that was raped on a bus a lot of famous women in India came out to talk about their own experiences of abuse. And remarkably, Anushka Shankar was one of those brave women who did it. By someone of her status coming out and talking about that, it has changed the way people engage and talk about those horrific experiences, particularly in an Asian environment where nobody talks about those things because there's so much shame attached to it. So she's incredible. She's talented, she's gifted, she's beautiful. She's a single mother of two young children. And you need to hear this podcast because you will be blown away by it. So enjoy. (laughs) Hi Anushka. Hello. How are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm I'm wonderful. I'm so glad we found the time to do this. I've come into your beautiful home and you've smuggled me into this,
0: is this your woman cave? Explain where we are. This is totally my woman cave. Um, So you were upstairs and you saw my younger kid and the older ones at school and up there it gets very loud and very rackety and lovely and boisterous. I and mean, if I need to I come down in here and I shut the door and it's my soundproof studio and to my little space did you have this
1: specially built in the house because you live in this i mean i don't want to give away but this phenomenal warehouse apartment i mean it is an amazing place to live and this is, is was this specially built
0: it was and i'm really lucky to have it um you know we kind of built this space with the idea that we could work and and live here you know have creative life and family life and all that stuff and so it's really nice because as someone that um for a living i tour um, and increasingly with two little ones, I, I do find that very, very difficult. So at least at home when I'm working, when I'm writing music, when I'm recording, I can be home. And so I can get all the breakfasts and dinners and lunches and breaks, you know, um, because I'm working downstairs, which is amazing.
1: A hardcore working mum who, as we walked in and initially just flicked the light on, this beautiful cabinet and has just illuminated three
0: stunning Sithars. Tell me about what what I'm looking at. Well, you're looking at my moment of jealousy, where kind of all my life I saw my friends with lovely guitar cabinets and guitar stands and things, and those don't really exist for Sithars the same way. And when we were building the studio, I was like, oh, can I just have like, a pretty display for my instruments and and actually what it is is just um you know this lovely kind of mesh wire screen copper wire screen we use to kind of protect them from dust and vibrations and stuff but in a way you can still see them and enjoy how beautiful they are because they're my babies and they're lovely
1: they're absolutely stunning you've brought us mince pies and i really want another bite right yes, now i'm gonna have so ask as me well. a long question i'm going to ask you cheers by the way i'm gonna <laughs> have a bite look um so these are homemade mince pies not <laughs> made by you made <laughs> by a friend mm-hmm. okay and um Nikas no, already stuck it in. Mm. like this is going to make great great podcast <laughs> material, oh my God, it's delicious. You're right. That pastry two year old thanks leotti leotti get on bake off
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: do, do When are they doing they must be doing kids bake off soon oh and a sip of tea
0: yes, I've done it the last four days in a row it's and is. it's turning into a ritual where I want my mince pie and my tea and it's amazing
1: it's that time of year it's absolutely Mm -hmm. that time of year um we're both sitting on the floor we've both got our feet shoes off and um I don't know where do we even begin right there's so much to talk about with you I love the fact that the reason I'm here is because you and I have kind of got like concentric worlds we've got mutual friends Mm -hmm. and I've kind of known about you for a while and we've known about each
0: other and all of a sudden we've just come into each other's lives and that's really great it's amazing and yeah exactly I've kind of known of you for a while and kind of met you in social things for a while and I don't know what suddenly happened the last few months where it's just gone boom and I and I love when it happens with friends of friends in that way where you kind of go okay that person I love that much loves this person that much so I already know they're wonderful yeah so there's a kind of trust when you first speak
1: yeah absolutely and and for me it's also about I'm getting to that point where now I'm meeting really cool women you get to an age where you think okay I've had friends that I've known from different phases of my life but now when I meet awesome women it's like instant it's like you there's an understanding where you kind of get where you've come from how hard you've worked where you're at and like there's no there's no bullshit is there
0: no there isn't and 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 I, I get what you're saying about this kind of identification of other strong women where you go okay I get I don't necessarily know the details but I get what you've done yeah and yes. I applaud it and support it and want to be a part of it. You know? Exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. And uh, enhance each other's lives. But I want to talk about your career, because let's introduce who you are to, to to my audience. Hello, my audience. Hello, my <laughs> podcast audience. This is super exciting. Um yeah, I mean, we, I've, I, in the intro I mentioned to your father is phenomenal Ravi Shankar. I mean, was were you always destined to be a sitar player? Did you have a choice? Mm, I'm going to chew my mince pie in. Go on. Chew your mince pie. I'm going to have a sip of your tea. I'm sure I'm not going to ask you anything original, by the way. I do apologize <laughs>
0: for that <now. laughs> What is funny about questions like that is I've been asked that since I was 13. And the answer has changed over the years. So, So even though it's not like a new question, it's a new process. Do you know what I mean? Um so at, as a teenager, I would have said, no, of course not. You know, I've completely been given the choice I want to have and all this stuff. And then in my 20s, I maybe said, well, yeah, there was some pressure, but I always knew what I was getting into. And, and now increasingly, I kind of go, yeah, no, There, there. on one level, there wasn't much choice because I was told there was choice by two very loving and supportive parents, you know, who really wanted me fundamentally to be happy. But at that young age, it would have been, a, it like, impossible to escape the scenario, if you know what I mean. Like, I knew who my father was. I knew... Um how many people would have wanted me to quote unquote follow in his footsteps. And I, and I knew he really wanted me to, as much as he also just wanted me to be happy. He really wanted me to play as well. So as a kid, that meant that, of course I said yes, even though I was asked, of course I said yes. So, so it was a kind of mixed bag. It was a mixed process of feeling pressured, not that I was being actively pressured, but feeling very pressured, but also loving music and loving it and having grown up in the environment, enjoying it, finding my way with it. And fundamentally, I think the older I got, I didn't want to deny myself the fact that I did love it because of the pressure. So I kind of swallowed the pressure, if that makes sense, in order to keep doing what I loved. You get to spend all that time because he was your dad, obviously, but he's also your,
1: your guru, mm-hmm. You know, your musical master. Sort of explain what that means.
0: <laughs> in Indian classical music, um, it's an oral tradition. So, what that means is the music is passed down from guru to student um one generation at a time, and that puts the teacher, the guru, at the kind of center of the learning process much more than in any other musical style where a teacher is hugely important, but the material is kind of available, they become your direct source for everything and and there's a respect afforded to that um which is correct, you know that really puts them um in indian in the Indian belief system almost in a position of of godlike. Um, and and that's a beautiful thing. It comes with a lot of respect and reverence and a very beautiful relationship. But when it's also your parent, that can be really tricky. And, um, and I, I give my dad all the credit on that one that he was deeply averse to just having a very formal guru and student relationship with me. Um, and so he put a lot of work into sort of, as when I was a child dividing our relationship, almost sometimes as simply as based on what room we were in, you know, that like we're in the living room now, we're being casual, this is, I'm your dad and we're hanging out and you can say things, you can argue, you can, I'm in mean, here, we're in the music room and this is a bit more serious and a bit more formal. So give me your focus and, you know, let me teach you. And, and we sort of carved out this way of, of dipping into the different dynamics, um, as and when we're appropriate. And then, of course, as the years went on, that became one big multifaceted relationship. Yeah, wonderful. And you went on tour with him. You know, just yeah, amazing. It was extraordinary. I mean, we toured together for, I guess, 22 years or something. You know, I started performing when I was 13. And, and then by the time I was 14, I was doing all his shows. And so we just went on the road together.
1: That's amazing. It's phenomenal. I mean, you've lived, you're only 36. Mm. I shouldn't do it. Do you mind me saying your age? No, I don't mind. <laughs> I'm older. Ask me in a couple. Yeah, she's yeah. older than me. She, I'm older. I'm older. It's fine. <laughs> um, uh, like you've done so much. You've done so much. I have to say, in your defence, I am sure, and you probably know this, that had you not really taken to it in the best way, I'm sure your dad would have gone, It's okay. Yeah. Go and do what you Let's want just to. go do something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine, honey. Okay. <laughs> you've obviously got the gift. We know you've got the gift.
0: Well, I mean, talent's a funny thing. I think you can have talent and and increasingly I find that's okay to say. Like talent's just something like I have black hair, you know, so yes, I have a musical aptitude, and that's fine, and I think um having you know an ability to learn languages or a skill with language or a skill with music um can help, and then it's what you do with it, and I think in my case, that was what I put into it, and also what my dad put into it, you know, because as a teacher, he really was an incredible teacher. And so I got so much out of that. But then of course I brought myself to it. Of course. My own practice, my own focus. And that's, you know, I think that's where you, you get what you get from. Yeah, 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 of course. And it's no different to
1: kind of a lot of, you know, parents bringing their children, you know, children of doctors becoming doctors or whatever axes, if we're thinking about India, mm-hmm. a lot of them go into the film industry. But obviously then at some point you made a decision that this is something that you want to pursue as a career for yourself. Mm-hmm. And that came at a really young age as well, didn't
0: it? Well, I think I was forced into a decision now I'm going to eat them in pie. Okay, I'll try and make this answer nice and long until you finish chewing. I was forced into a decision at that point where everyone else was going to university. So I was in high school and and as I say, I'd been touring. So it was very tough what I did actually because I toured around the world and was going to a normal high school at the same time. So sometimes I'd leave for two months carry my paperwork, you know, it wasn't anything extraordinary, but it was a kind of focus that I had on wanting to have a normal life, but also wanting to have this touring career. But at that crossroads moment of like everyone else was going to university, that was when I really had to look at what I was doing and go, well, I can't keep doing both at this moment in time. Do I want to put music on pause and go to university for four years? Or do I want to put university on pause and fully go into touring? And the answer felt quite clear at that point that, like, I already loved touring and, and that was what I wanted to do. So I put it on pause for one year and then I put university on pause for a second year and then I was like, yeah. <laughs> and, and you've released how many albums now? Nine. And how many Grammy
1: nominations? Six. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm laughing because like it's amazing. You <laughs> and you were the first Indian to perform at the Grammys, is that
0: mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You were, when was that? 2000. 2005. So I was 24.
1: 24 years old, and there you are performing at the Grammys. I mean, is that something you just, you just take in your stride because you've seen your dad be so phenomenal, or did it? Do you ha- no. do you also have moments where you go, holy crap, I'm playing the sitar at the Grammys, and I'm the first Indian to have done so. That I mean, that's massive.
0: It was awesome, and it, no, I was completely excited by. It. I mean, I mean almost. It's tricky. I, I appreciate your question of like, did that not feel like a big deal because of all the things that he had done? And of course the flip is true as well, that it felt like a really big deal because of all of the things he had done, that there was something that I was being asked to do and being recognized for. And that felt really lovely. Um, and stuff like that does feel really good, you know, in, in, I try and keep it all in the right perspective, but, but it is exciting and it is lovely. And I think in that world music category, I was, um, I was the first Indian woman to be nominated, and I was the youngest person ever to be nominated. And that kind of stuff, yeah, it feels, it does feel good. It does feel good.
1: What I really like is that your albums. There was a point where you decided that you, you didn't just release classical Indian albums. You wanted to do something a bit different. Tell me about what that process was. I'm very aware that we've not even looked at the <laughs> instrument as well. We're gonna is that is that the one you will do it?
0: Oh, I'll dig out another
1: one from you. will dig out one, and we'll out. talk about the sitar in a minute. Um, but yeah, yeah, you want you made a decision to move away from just classical Indian music.
0: Well, you know, I, I as I say, I, I grew up in a kind of one side, very normal life. And on the other side, this very extraordinary life with my dad and touring. And, and so as a result of that, I had these sort of dualistic elements to my music input as well, where I was also listening to all the things my peers were listening to. And I was friends with lots of people who were making very non-classical types of music. And I was going and dancing to their music at the clubs. And I was part of that world. But then the music I was making was going on tour and playing sitar and releasing, you know, classical Raga music. And I think the point came in my early 20s where it wasn't so much a desire to make, you know, in a label sense, classical versus non-classical music, but I wanted to make my own music. And just that desire to have your own creative voice come out. Whereas I'd been making music, I'd been playing my dad's music up until that point. And that was the decision of like, I want to take a little bit of time and just find what my own voice is when I make music without kind of preconceived boundaries or limitations and and then obviously what ended up happening was I made music that reflected my personality and my life and and all the multiculturalism that had been at play since I was born so that's that's kind of just what happened really and i loved it because that
1: absolutely spoke volumes to me and you can imagine like growing up in uh, up north in bradford in yorkshire as an indian girl who loves Actually, I loved classical music bizarrely without it kind of really being part of my life, but just loved it, Indian classical. But then also dancing in clubs and listening mm-hmm. to electronic music. And that made, so when I hear, oh my God, Anushka Shankar's just done an album, and it's like, and she's done this, and she's worked with Kashkale, and there's all these, re- it's
0: like, what, like
1: it bloom on, it's amazing.
0: really yeah, that's yeah,
1: yeah, awesome. like, my, like I've got it on my iPod, and I've listened to them over mm-hmm. and over and over,
0: yes, thanks, yeah, 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 so <laughs> okay.
1: you, it spoke, vol it really did, mm-hmm. it really was, for me, absolutely,
0: yes, that's exactly what you should, why not, yeah. you know, and I hear what you're saying about it, being an Indian woman as well, because like now there are a lot more Indian women that are very kind of visible in that sort of multicultural base in the arts, and and, and there weren't really at the time, yeah. So yeah, Yeah, yes, you've been flying a flag for a long,
1: long time, which has been great. Can we have a look at a sitar?
0: Yeah, jumping straight. to it. (laughs) let's do, let's
1: do it, let's do it. There's so much we can talk about. This room is so beautiful. (laughs) No, it's nice and cosy, and you've got a little. Um, is that a mando you've got there? What's What's your little little temple? Someone gave me. Yes, come. You've got a Ganesh Ganesh down there playing the playing playing the sitar.
0: Funnily enough. Wow, (laughs) (laughs) I thought I know exactly what
1: room that's supposed to be in.
0: And a couple of other little toys, there's a piano, there's a harmonium, there's a piano, a harmonium. There are boxes. Can you play all of
1: them? Can you play piano?
0: Play, sure. Of course. Um, Yeah. Let's call it yes. Yes. (laughs) is the answer.
1: (laughs) So, right. Now, this is really exciting.
0: Um, This is my main sitar. and it was made in Delhi by Sanjay Rikiram about eight years ago. And it's been my main instrument since then. Very much kind of made for me to my body shape. I have not tuned it. So it's probably going to sound horrendous until I tune it. So Are you tune Yeah. When right. you mention the name of the, Yes. Yeah, it sounds horrible. It sounds like it's been a shot. Oh, this is embarrassing. Sounds amazing. Isn't there a famous thing where your dad was tuning on a Bangladesh concert? Yeah, where he starts tuning and everyone started clapping. And he picked up the mic and said, well, if you like the tuning so much, I hope you like the first piece. I
1: love that. I have seen it. So, right, explain how you're tuning it, because there's lots, right,
0: talk, talk me through tuning what's going on. is a complicated event. There are 19 strings. But 13 of those are what we call the sympathetic resonating strings, and that's what I'm fiddling with right now. And the problem with them is... The beauty about them is that they resonate when you play on the main strings. The problem with them is therefore they have to be perfectly in tune, because if you've got one of these strings out of tune, then they'll zing out out of tune when you play on the... on the main string. So get these in shape, and then... and then get the main strings in shape. These are two rhythm strings which are tuned to the tonic, and they're used to kind of punctuate phrases, but also in fast rhythm sections and stuff like that. And
1: it's beautifully ornate as
0: well. It is, yeah. Um, yeah. It's,
1: be- it's a stunning,
0: stunning stunning instrument. What, what's it made out of? A mix of wood and a gourd. This part, the base at the bottom is a dried pumpkin. Did you know that? I learned that <laughs> recently, and I didn't
1: believe the bit. They were like, it's a pumpkin. I that is remarkable. Yeah. Why?
0: Why a pumpkin? Why not actually make it out of wood? Well, I don't think you can get this shape and this texture um, out of wood, and that's just traditional, and now they're grown specifically for that. And, yeah, they've got little pumpkin molds sitting outside in the back garden or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Getting there. Getting there. And then you've got four main playing strings. So four main playing strings, two rhythm strings, 13 rhythm strings which are still not quite there. We're close. And Sanjay
1: Ram has got his name on it, especially made for you. He's obviously the man. He's the man.
0: He is the man. He's, uh, his grandfather started making instruments and then his father made instruments for my dad. And,
1: and then he made one for you. There you go. I love that Indian tradition where things are passed down through family.
0: It's funny, isn't it? Because in a way I go, oh, I never asked him whether he was forced into it. <laughs> but it's such a common thing passing on what you have there we go okay so then here's my main string almost as i say a complicated process i'm having an
1: out-of-body experience well, I'm sit- I've am just dawned on me that I'm sitting with you in your recording, in your
0: can studio. Closer to me than I am <laughs> i I'm basically sitting on Here top of an in- <laughs> instrument. Here is Anita. <laughs> <laughs> <And> <laughs> it's amazing. I can't, like, I, this is not... It's a thing, isn't it? Okay, well, yeah. well, so it's tuned. Yeah, it's, is it very, like, can we ask the cost of, if, if somebody wants to buy? I mean, obviously this... It depends, you know. I mean, I think this one's obviously made specifically for me with a few details that are specific to my body size and shape. But you can't, I mean, it's nothing like the western classical instruments you can get like the best sitar for under 2000 pounds which is really not that much if you think that like someone would have to spend 10 to 20000 on like the best saxophone or something yeah. or a violin could yeah. be a million of course yeah. then you're in that range yeah so there are some there's one instrument back behind you there which is um one of only five sitars made by this man called Nodumalek, who made sitars exclusively for my dad and so there's only five of them in the world and they're really exceptional instruments so I don't know what the price on that one is you know because it's very much a one-of-a-kind even more so than a Stradivarius but you know the costing's just
1: different um yes. and I guess well this is yours so this is priceless so can we can we I don't know I don't even know what to ask you to but
0: you, you mean you just- Give us something. I'll give you something and you'll yeah. have to, I'm just going to put in a caveat that the last time I played my instrument, embarrassingly, was the 5th of November at that show in Bombay. <laughs> <laughs> and today is the, I don't know when you're going to release it, but yeah. today's the 12th of December, so I'm a good five weeks away from my last, um, uh, can that make, that can have an effect? Oh, horrific. I mean, if you see my fingers, which they can't see, but five weeks ago, I had really solid black lines dug right into my finger and no sensation. Um, and now I'm starting to feel my fingers again like the skin has softened very much and so right now if I, I will try and play for you but it it'll, it'll do that it'll slip off the string and it'll and my string went completely flat.
1: That's beautiful. <laughs> oh,
0: honey. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you're in here. It's embarrassing to do this for an interview, but... No, this is cy- so I get in funny cycles with playing where, um, you know, up until November 5th, for about three months, I was playing six, seven hours a day and then we went crazy tours and then that was my last show in the diary for the year and I just I don't want to play for a while I need to stop so
1: this is really special then for me for this podcast yeah. thank you I really appreciate it
0: my worst for you love yeah. I know
1: <laughs> cut her worst is still the best in the world um yeah, is the your is your baby like a little
0: neglected and
1: amazing. I'm
0: going to start doing my scales again tomorrow. <laughs> oh, no, thank you so much. I mean, that is a beautiful. What's what's the white bit around the edge, so you know? Traditionally, um it was kind of deer horn and now it's plastic and they use um enamel and different things to do the colored ornamentation. And again, here on the bridge work and stuff, traditionally horn, now they tend to do new instruments with plastic. This this one is still the old horn bridges. Um I think they're still working on trying to make the plastic sound as good as the horn, which would be very nice when they do. I'm still trying to get over the fact that I've just been practically
1: sitting on top of you, listening you were to you play much in my lap. Yeah. I know <laughs> my hairs are standing on end, and um, my palms are going all sweaty. I mean, it, to me, it's it's stunning. There's just something about, for me, um, for me, it's about it connects with my some my heritage and it's it echoes deep Mm -hmm. really echoes Mm -hmm. deep um but just to hear someone who's so good at what they do and you know the top of their in the world to play like that yeah amazing Um, amazing amazing. thanks yeah thank you um so how do you do it you're you're an international sitar musician superstar you you have this of course beautiful home when you've got your recordings you've got two children Mm -hmm. you're a Mm mum how do you make it all work how do you how do you just come back from a tour where you
0: you you went to India
1: Mm -hmm. how how do you do
0: it I don't know I mean I I sort of I, I do a lot of work a lot of work on um on myself and on trying to make decisions from the right place you know and there's been a kind of learning curve through having children that has been sometimes a process of trial and error you know where um the first year that my older boy Zubin was born that year had already been booked two years before that so it was booked on the basis of me not having children and so the year he was born I did 96 shows and he was just kind of on tour with us and my sound men would kind of just build a bed into whatever tour bus we were on and and off we would go. And uh, and it was an amazing adventure. But the next year, the level of exhaustion I felt from having not known what I was going to get into. I think a lot of women, you come into having kids and you don't know what it's going to be like. And you don't know what the differences are between, for example, my male musicians who I work with. And they have kids and they go on tour and their partner is the one that's at home making sure the kids are all right. And then there I was trying to do the same thing. But it wasn't as easy, you know. And, and I and I crashed really badly. And I and I also found obviously with my kid that there was this kind of adventure, but a lack of stability and a lack of, and I thought, no, I need to, I need to scale back. And scaling back has been a, a different process year by year. You know, some, sometimes it means still 40 or 50 shows, but in a way that I've really designed very carefully to know that I'm able to still be solid and be their mom. Um, and sometimes it means, no, I can't do that. and um, And I need to be here to make sure things are solid and, Now I've got two, and that became exponential, obviously. So I kind of went, right, I know what it's like to have a kid now, so I can do this. And then suddenly there were two, and I didn't know what that was like at all. (laughs) So (laughs) it's a learning curve. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Learning curve, and we don't get it right all the time.
1: How did you get your energy? You said you crashed really badly. I mean, I'm I'm not surprised. Newborn, 90, how many? 96 shows. Yeah. I mean, good. You know, amazing that you did that. So what did you do? How did you come back from that? What, like, Did you just lock the doors? That's it. Time out.
0: I didn't. I wish I had. I mean, I, I think learning to do less has been a lifetime lesson for me, because I was kind of born into a family of doing, you know, and you play and you perform and you travel. And that's what... You know, there, there's legends about that, family legends about the kind of things that family members, including my dad, have done and what they've played through. And even when this was happening, they still went and played. And there's that kind of show must go on mantra, you know, which I absorbed. And then in my own life, I've started to realize I don't always buy into where I think actually right now it's not about the show going on. <laughs> you know, It's about making sure I'm OK to do the next hundred shows by by being okay right now. So I did cancel some things at that point And, and from there have just been really, really careful about what I try and commit to. And, and And a lot of when I said I do a lot of work, I mean, some of it has just been trying to operate really clearly on what my values and priorities are, you know, because I've spent my whole life being a musician where that's always come first. And in the last few years, obviously, that's changed and that doesn't come first anymore. Was that natural? Did you? No, it's not been natural. I mean, in some ways, yes, there's an instinctive thing of like, obviously, I love my children more than my instrument. Like that's innate and that's obvious. But when that comes down to like, would I selfishly rather go and be able to do every big career thing that I'm asked about? Uh, Yeah, Sure, I would you know, but I start to learn that there are consequences about how much I'm away from my children and and what that does for them. And and I'll never get that back once I've done it, you know. So, you know, there are definitely times where I have to kind of say no to something amazing and then watch someone else do it. And that's that's life, isn't it? Like, it's just been a process of learning that you can't do everything all the time. Sadly, that's life for
1: women more than it is men.
0: Yeah. (laughs) The idea that we can have everything it's bullshit it's absolute bullshit. i feel like I, fe- I i was spoon-fed my whole life this lie about what it was going to be like in this post-feminist society that i thought i was growing up in you know and then suddenly you realize it was complete bull
1: i totally agree
0: mm. yeah we're told
1: you can have everything you can do everything and so much pressure mm-hmm. it's actually so much
0: pressure it's like I get it, but it's actually, yes, as a woman, you can can have kids, you can have a career. Actually, no. And that's why I'm really careful when people do that thing of asking that question of, how do you manage it all? You know, and I said, don't, I don't. It's really hard because I feel like I used to read interviews with other people. And especially when I was in that kind of, confusing phase after having my first kid and was trying to figure out how to do it and you'd see like this celebrity's bounced back to their body five weeks after there and look this one's making three films and that one and the spin is always just look how they're doing it they're doing it all perfectly they're doing it all easily and I just think you know what like I don't need to absorb that nobody
1: else needs to absorb that. No one knows what she's going through and the sacrifice she's made and also you know this kind of celebrity like they'll have they will have help they may have a trainer, you know, and if she's <laughs> off to do a movie, then she'll be made, someone will be making
0: sure that she's looking like that to get in. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. whole thing is just a nonsense. Exactly. And yeah. I think just to try and be honest about that. So if someone else is reading an article where they t- say to me, how do you do it? that I'm saying it's really, really hard. And like one day at a time, we try and make the best decision. And, you know, and you have to make sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your, your choice, yeah. obviously. Yeah. And I think that's the key is like when I talked about my priorities uh, and my value system, it's like, It's not for me to make my children make sacrifices. Like, as an adult, I can make sacrifices. I have that choice, and I can't make that choice for them. They didn't choose to be born to a busy sitar player. You know what I mean? So it's like, I go, okay, I need to make sure they're okay first. That's that's the first thing. And then from there, what all what all can I do? Lucky them. They've got the best mum and they're absolutely
1: beautiful. Yeah. I met the little one. Oh my God, he's to die for. He's yeah, he
0: really is edible. I'm glad mm. you said that. It's actually a
1: condition because <laughs> I
0: see like really chubby babies and want I, bite. I want to bite. Yeah, I just said that about someone else's child this morning. I said, D- I just, um, <laughs> this thing is happening in my mouth where I want to just. Mm. <laughs> do you think since you've had kids
1: um, that it's kind of I don't know, changed something about you as a woman that's made you see the world in a different way and solidified. I feel like in the last few years, um, I, I hear a lot more from you and you're very outspoken about how you feel about things politically and certainly things have gone on in India. Like you've really put your neck on the line and stepped up and gone, right, well, this is me. You all know who I am
0: and this is how I feel about this. And has, is that something that's happened since you've had your kids or what? Yeah, unequivocally. I, I can't necessarily analyze it, but I know that having kids makes everything feel a lot more precious and urgent. And so when things feel unjust, it, it, there's an urgency to my worry that's selfish, actually. It's about my children and their future and where I care about the world. And when you see things happening to o- other children, it feels at least for me i feel that more deeply than i used to before um because i know how i feel about my children so i know that those kids are someone else's kids and they you know it, it, i just i just know what that would be like and and it feels more wrong and and even just my my feminism has changed the quality of my feminism now feels a lot more to be honest impatient and angry where i'm just over the kind of gentle process of going well maybe it could be a little bit of oh, come on you know i just i just want this world to be
1: Better. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I now. feel the same. I don't know what, I'll tell you, loads of things have probably happened. It feels like all of a sudden there's this new wave of feminism where everyone's like, Right, enough is enough. How can we still be talking about equality? how can this conversation still be happening? And I guess other things have happened where the world is becoming more and more right-wing and men, are, you know, we, we can see what's happening around us and all these kind of sexual abuse scandals that are coming out. You've got Trump in America, the whole thing. And every I think women have just gone, right, if we don't speak up now, then when? When, when
0: yeah. if not now, when? Really, That's that's it. And I think, again, coming back to that idea of like, I think I internalized and spoon-fed a fiction that feminism. I, I've always been a feminist. It's not that I thought it wasn't relevant anymore, but I, I believed that we had done more than we really had. You know, because when you grow up and you read the history books, you know, whatever little there might be, um, it feels like it's a past fight for votes or it's a past fight for equal pay, or you know. And then the more I'm in my adult womanhood and looking around at the differences between women and men and girls and boys. And the huge, vast discrepancies and inequalities and and kind of how systemic it is, it feels like an oppression, you know, and it feels like that can't still be what's happening to an entire half of a population. It's an oppression and it's unjust and it needs to change. Like
1: you say, it's half the population. You've got a really unique perspective on the world as well, though, because... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of straddle three three mm-hmm. countries, right? I mean, yeah,
0: born born in the UK, grew up in California, and India. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I feel tricultural, which is my new favorite word. Um, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> well, feel free to use it. Um, yeah, where it it just it has been interesting for me because I do often get a kind of constant global perspective. Well, I shouldn't call it global, but but a multifaceted perspective, and and I think I had that starting from. More than twenty years ago, when that wasn't necessarily as easy to have, I think now the world has become such that you can have that a bit more easily, and and I feel like when things happen, whatever they may be. But for example, the the Delhi gang rape that happened four years ago, and I, I was on tour globally, and of course I'm an Indian female musician, so this was something I was speaking about around the world, and so I could kind of the difference between perspectives and situations in France versus different parts of America to India to London. to And so there's just this kind of amazing opportunity to see how people's perspectives and experiences mean they internalize stories in completely different ways. Just to remind people that was
1: the horrific case that happened um, where a girl was going home from the cinema. Um,
0: December 16th, 2012, it was. And she was gang raped by five men. And, um, and the kind of particular bl- brutality of it meant that it kind of was massive world news, rightly so. Um, and I think I was one of probably everyone I knew that was deeply, deeply, I, I want to say traumatized by that story. You know, I, f- I felt it and I carried it. And, and I know a lot of women did. I mean, talking about it now, I don't we? I still feel it. I yeah, still I feel, feel it in my stomach. Yeah. It's this really horrible thing where, for some reason, in that moment, the whole world stopped and was talking about that story. And to me, in my experience, I feel like that was the cat. That was the moment that has kind of generated this new wave of feminism that has continued to build for different reasons around the world. But that was the first moment in my lifetime that I remember the whole world talking about women and sexual violence at the same time.
1: And it changed your life as well, because you talked about your own experience of it, and your own abuse. Yeah. For the first time in your life,
0: you made that public. What, why? Explain why you did that. It's hard to explain, because it, I feel like it was coming from a place of pain, not necessarily kind of a a carefully thought out process you know it was it was emotional you know where I had felt that experience that had happened to her as I see I saw so many people feel but at the same time I was seeing people you know analyze the story as well in different ways and there was you know one of the things that I saw start to come out was that perhaps part of why her story resonated so strongly was because she was a middle-class girl And so people in India were able to identify with her more than they could with all the other people that this might be happening to. And so that was what was giving it more attention. And that kind of pocketed away somewhere in my brain where I thought, yeah, we don't talk about this. You know, we don't talk about it. So there will still be this feeling that this doesn't happen in certain quarters. This doesn't happen to certain types of people, you know, and suddenly that just felt. Like I couldn't go on with that anymore because I just thought this might not make a difference. But to just say it happens everywhere, because I know if people knew it happens to me, then you can't say it doesn't happen to any kind of person. I think you were so, I think it's um, so brave
1: and courageous to have done that. And actually you're right because for Anushka Shankar to step up and go, well, this happened to me because everyone would look at you as one of the most privileged young women in india you know this wonderful world that you grew up in and this l- fabulous life that you've lived and and yet you stepped up to say actually it's happened to me mm-hmm. and it and i think that would have really made, it made people sit up and pay attention
0: because mm-hmm. it makes it makes national news it does and i think it's just that thing of like sexual violence happens anywhere anytime and obviously as we know not just to girls and to women you know and so it's just like you have to remove the taboos and the stigma because there is just this intrinsic level at which victims feel the shame in this crime in particular and so to be able to kind of start a process of just going i can say it happened to me because this isn't my secret to have to keep anymore the shame is not on me you know and i think that makes a difference and and we see now you know this is you know a few years on what's happening in a really seismic level when people really start to speak and come forward. And it's really, really amazing to watch what's happening.
1: It is amazing. And it's phenomenal that so many women have come forward. And and everybody's really shocked. And I'm shocked and you're shocked. We're all shocked. But at the same time, I'm not. Yes. I'm not surprised. People, like, people have said, is this really been happening? And as a woman, I'm going, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just that we've just swallowed it up and accepted it. So when someone makes a sexist remark at work, you, it makes you feel hideous. You feel awkward and weird and you just suck it up because you don't want to rock the boat. Because you don't, And that's appalling that that's mm-hmm. how we feel. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: And you talk about the shame and it's, that's global. But the reason I wanted to talk about you, particularly talking about your experience in India... I mean, tell me if you think I'm wrong, but it's even, bright in a way, it's so hard in India to talk about these things because the shame that is attached to it is huge, that even within families, people can't open up about like abuse or anything that's handled because people don't know how to deal with it. They won't accept it. And girls are obviously just often just told to just shut up and get on with it, you know?
0: It's tricky, isn't it? Because I, I don't have an answer for you as to why that is. But, but one of the things I, I can't help feeling, like if sex and sexuality in themselves have a stigma and a silence and a shame around them, then where do you even begin with sexual abuse and sexual violence? You're
1: so right. You know, today I heard on the news that they've banned a condom advert from television in India because... But this is the land of the Kama Sutra, man. I'm wordless right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They've banned a, they've banned a, they've banned a condom ad- advert. Mm. It's, yeah where do you even begin i didn't so there's yes. uh, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yes yeah.
0: so what
1: was the back yeah. do, what was the reaction you, what was the reaction
0: that you got actually I, I, I mean to be honest i wasn't prepared for it i wasn't prepared for the level of reaction because i mean for me i mean the bigger bird's eye view for me is that um that gang rape happened five days after my dad died and so i i think what i did emotionally was kind of pair those two events in some way where I I was kind of grieving my dad and also grieving this story um, of what had happened to a woman I never even knew, but kind of felt like all women felt, you know, and, um, and so I was still grieving and quite raw, very vulnerable. And, and I put that story out because that felt like the right thing to do. But I wasn't prepared, perhaps naively, I wasn't prepared for the level to which that was going to kind of go global and be a big piece of news. And, and, And so I didn't necessarily take care of myself very well around that because whereas I had released the video kind of by recording it on my iPhone, myself in a room, so I'd said exactly what I wanted to say, I hadn't put that kind of PR thought into, and for this whole next year with this album I'm releasing, I'm going to be asked this by every different reporter in a different country and I'm prepared for how to word my answers or help like someone actually just who I'd never met sat down and went, but let's be clear, were you actually raped at that point or not? And you know, something like that where it's a man I've never met before asking me a sentence. Someone like, ask you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you later which publication. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, stuff like that where I hadn't, I hadn't prepared for the fact that what me sharing my story would mean to other people was that now there were no boundaries. And that, you know, I needed to learn how to keep my own boundaries around how much I was prepared to share. And that was a kind of learning curve that I was on the back foot with a little bit because I did it so impulsively and emotionally. I don't regret it, but I think now I've had some time to kind of prepare around, I'm sitting here and this is how much I'm prepared to say to you and I'm comfortable with that, but I won't go two steps further if someone is pushing me, you know?
1: Yeah. Learn to be able to say, I don't want to answer, want to answer that. Yeah. And you're allowed to say that. That's <laughs> something I've learned as well, because yeah. I'm at just going, la, 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 I need yeah. to answer everything. It's fine to just go, you know,
0: that's, well, yeah. I think another thing we kind of swallow as women is, uh, is this kind of notion that we're just supposed to be nice. So you put me in a position where I'm doing press from when I'm 13 years old and having to kind of make sure everyone thinks I'm nice, you know. And so the idea that somehow you also know how to say, I'm not comfortable with that. Sorry, I'm not going to answer that. You don't know how to do that. (laughs) It's like, of course, I'm going to answer anything you tell me because I'm just going to make sure you think that I'm nice and lovely and clever and da, 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 -da." so,
1: yeah. But you're also a badass who so can say no. And it's fine to say that because mm. then they can't print it. You can't print <laughs> or, you
0: know, yeah. Yes. yeah. yeah, No, that's the kind of like I like growing up. There are some things I know how to do now in my 30s that I wish I could tell myself at 18, 20 how to do. But that's just part of the process, isn't it? No regrets though, right? No regrets. I Except I if any, because I generally say no regrets, but if any... I feel like I could have been more of a badass I think like through a lot of my teenage and 20s I was being a creative artist in the public eye but was very careful to put the right foot forward you know that concept of legacy and all of that stuff and it took me a while to start to find my way with just trusting that I can be my own person and be my own artist
1: was that pressure you're putting on yourself or do you think that came from elsewhere where they were like behave in a certain way
0: no one was actively telling me to do that but you imbibe this stuff you know it was definitely what I what I did to myself I think, you know, and you see some people just kind of come out that with that kind of amazing rebellious spirit, even though they're really, really young and able to just put their stuff out there with that confidence. And I think, oh, I wish I could have done that, you know, but also it happened exactly the way it was meant to. And I'm fine with that. And like you
1: say, you were that badass spirit inside you. Mm -hmm. You just have this phenomenal ability. This is how I would put it. To actually see what how to behave in a certain environment, I think that in itself is emotional intelligence that not everybody has. Do you know what I mean? I think if you knew, you've I mean just from knowing knowing you now and what you said, and so now it's the right time. Now you're absolutely within. You've kind of grown into your confidence and know who you are, where you can go. And I breathe fire. <laughs> I play the sitar like an angel, and I breathe fire like a dragon. <laughs> ah that's my new t-shirt thank you (laughs) I understand what you mean because I feel the same I did this thing where like I've just always been quite rebellious had this really strong spirit and been very willful and yet I would go into meetings it's a completely different Mm -hmm. world to you Anushka I mean you've been on stage and traveled the world and all the rest of it and had to do interviews with international publications but I would just walk into a meeting and my shoulders would go up and my eyes would become twice as wide and I would just yes yes yeah. and just want to please and walk out going they don't want to employ me I'm just some like you know where's my spirit like why didn't I show them who I am Mm -hmm.
0: but I'm learning yeah yeah Yeah. it's a learning process and I think again there's that kind of cultural thing too where we are really trained to be nice girls aren't we (laughs) yes absolutely yeah
1: I mean my mum has this thing where she loves the fact that I'm independent she's really proud of my career and yet she will always have to tell everybody that I can make round (laughs) chapatis.
0: What the hell? You're one up on me there, love. <laughs>
1: I don't. By the way, I'm. I can, but I don't. I choose not to, <laughs> because I cannot be bothered. Yeah. Sometimes, if I want to eat a nice homemade chapati, I will cook
0: it, fine, but it's the expectation, like, stop it, mum. Whereas um, my six-year-old called someone out on being sexist in front of me last week, and I thought, okay, I've done my job, you know, this is good. He was like, that's a really sexist thing to say. Boys can do that, and girls shouldn't have to do that. And I thought, oh, I love you so much right now. (laughs) bringing up two feminists. So what's next? What's happening now? Yeah, I mean, you've just come finished the tour in India, finished the tour with the silent film Shiraz that I scored, which is going to come out on DVD in February. And I just found out they're going to screen it um, on a limited release, like at the BFI, for example, in February for about a week or so. And other theatres are too. Um, I'm going to take some time next year to write a new album. So I don't know what that's going to be yet. um, But we'll see. And before that is a little holiday with my boys in Sri Lanka. Lovely, really nice. Tell us about Shiraz. And So Shiraz is this lovely film from 1927 that was one of the first uh, films made in India. And it's a silent film. It's a love story. Um, and it's a very fictionalized account of the love story behind the building of the Taj Mahal. So there's a kind of fictional character called Shiraz who's part of this story in the film. And he's the one that eventually goes on to uh, be the architect uh, who designs the Taj Mahal. And it's a shocking piece of work in the sense that I'd never seen anything of that scale um, made in India from that time. Lots of beautiful artistic work in there and and stuff like two really passionate kisses that I'd never seen. No. Yes. (laughs) Shock horror. Yeah. Go come with them. a warning I know it's mm-hmm. funny because it, here at the bar beginning you know, no one gasped about that but the first show in Hyderabad you could hear the whole audience go because <gasps> <laughs> you just don't expect to see it in a black and white film and it's fascinating that it started there in the 20s and don't know when it kind of when it changed when it
1: turned into just the bush mm. shaking yeah. and the birds <laughs> and the birds yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah who knows yeah. Um end of empire I don't know mm. I don't know that's another that's, mm. that's the next podcast mm. we'll discuss that um, so that's and you're and you you just tell explain what happened in Bombay because you said this the other night to
0: me. When... Oh God! So how uh, well, to explain it? So basically, this I, this film that I've scored was also booked as a live show. So it's the first time I've ever played live in front of a film, which is technically the most challenging thing I've ever done because of the kind of work required to stay in sync with the film the whole time. And so there are things like bar numbers and and, and sort of click that help us stay with the film. And at the fifth show in Bombay, that equipment all broke in the first three minutes. And um, and we had a smiling internal panic, you know, every person in my band and crew, and uh, and I don't know what to say other than that we did the show. How did you do the show? We panicked behind smiling faces, and one scene at a time, nailed it, you know. And it was really funny because it afterwards we kind of came off stage and thought, how funny that no one else would. That was probably a less good show than the other four shows, but to us and to me, we were heroes you know and that's something that I love about being on stage is like you just have to make it work you have to give your audience the show that they've come for so you yeah. make it happen how did you keep time how did everyone keep time um, I kept banging my foot really loudly
1: <laughs> this woman play, kept time with, the, and everybody kept up with your foot yeah <laughs> I can't it's so amazing like oh no you are a hero everyone listening to this will know that you and your band are heroes how many
0: pieces had you broken that like score into? Well, I mean, it's an hour forty-seven minutes of music. Um, so we had thirty-five scenes, and we had a lot of material. It was written. No, it was definitely the most stressful show I've ever done, and I couldn't stop sh- speaking at shouting level for about three hours after the show from adrenaline. It was hilarious. Yeah, yeah when you come off stage and yeah. something's gone that I'm
1: badly wrong, run an Olympic marathon or something. Yeah. It's just. Ugh. You,
0: did
1: <laughs> you did that. You nailed it. You nailed it. Yeah, you know, we haven't even mentioned your sister. Yeah, we've well, got to. Let's mention <laughs> like you won't know, but you might know. You probably will know. But um, your sister is Nora Jones, mm-hmm. who is another hero. Like I just amazing, amazing jazz singer
0: songwriter. When did you discover that she was your sister? So I knew she was my sister from when I was born. Um, the world didn't discover that I had a sister until I was about. Twenty, which is when she released her first album so obviously that's when they started taking interest none of us had a secret no one gave a shit do you know what i mean until she was making music and there was a story to tell so so the story was told in the most dramatic way possible and um and that was something for us all to weather. you know because of course it's weird when when stuff's out in the public that's not quite how it is but we've you know we've been very close from the beginning
1: your dad's jeans are amazing, aren't they? Yeah, just they're like, not. Two other. gorgeous girls, <laughs> amazing
0: musicians, so talented. And have you worked together? We've worked together on a couple of things. That, uh, first on the Breathing Underwater album I did with Kirsch Kale. we did one song. And um, and then we worked a bit more elaborately together on my album called Traces of You, which is the one I was writing when my father passed away. So at that point, I'd already spoken to her about being on the album. And then like all this stuff just started pouring out, and I wanted her to be on it. So we did three songs together at that point. And... Um, yeah it's funny like we so obviously we haven't worked together a huge amount but i think there's a sort of trust and relationship that's already there so the working together just flowed very easily i watched something really
1: moving actually when you both went to receive your dad's grammy yeah and the two of you went it was it's really moving really moving and he only just passed away a few months earlier it
0: was about two months before that and um so he got the lifetime achievement award at the grammys um I guess I guess almost 5 years ago now and uh, and so we've accepted it together which was
1: amazing. It was amazing amazing to watch these two talented gorgeous sisters get up on stage to talk about their phenomenal father. But what I what struck me was how self assured you I mean both of you but how wonderfully you spoke and how eloquently and how hilariously and how <laughs> you were standing there and you had in your ha- the palm of your hands, the entire audience. And I thought, now she is a badass.
0: Why, thank you.
1: I want to say thank you so much. I feel that we will do another podcast in the future when you've got a new album to talk about. I want to say, Anushka, that you are officially a Rani's Rani. So <laughs> I am crowning you
0: awesome
1: yes so welcome welcome to the club you are um, incredible and thank you so much for your time and allowing me into your inner sanctum and having that wonderful intimate moment where you played the sitar for me it's, I'll treasure that for as long as I live thank you so much if you enjoyed that podcast please leave a review on iTunes and tell all your friends we want to get as many people on board as we can you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram, it's Anita Rani, or go to my website, it's Anita Next week, I'm going to be talking to the incredible scout ambassador, the first black British man to have walked to the North Pole, Dwayne Fields. See you on the next one.